everybody, it's time to roll for intent with Creator's Corner. And it's definitely been a tiny bit. We are we're busy boys. We got Gen Con around the corner. We have our 100th episode. We are recording that tonight. We we've got a ton going on, Trevor. How do we even have time to do this? Uh the reason we have time to do this is because it's 5:30 a.m. for you. Oh, that's, that's right. how much that's we why love it's you still guys. dark outside. <laughs> <laughs> we woke up really early to do this. Not as early for me, because I'm in central time, but Christian's over there on the West Coast, just, you know, wiping the sleep out of his eyes. Though, I will say that he looks much more awake than I do. Yeah, I'm I'm an early riser. I I set my alarm for 5.15, because we were going to start recording at 5.30, and I knew I would be awake before it. And when I first woke up, I grabbed my phone, looked at it, and it was 4.58. And I'm like, ah, yep, that's that's pretty pretty standard for me. Yeah, I was awake, too, so you should have just texted me. We would have done this earlier. <laughs> well, I didn't want to literally, like, leap out of bed, stagger to my computer, and, uh, all right, let's 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 do this. <laughs> That's how I live my life. That's how I live I feel, my life. I leap out of bed and stagger to my computer every morning. Because hey, I'd feel like Rick Sanchez. I just hadn't started <laughs> drinking yet. <laughs> all right, what are we talking about today? Ooh, today we have a pretty awesome Galarian lore book. And as you all know, I'm not super up on my Galarian lore, but this book, we are reviewing High Helm, the uh, basically one of the last remaining Sky Citadels. I think there's, what, 10 in total remaining? Uh, I can like never that. remember. I think there might be six intact remaining that have not been overtaken by something other than dwarves. But no, there might be 10 physically. I can never remember. I don't even think they get into that in this book. Then again, I have not read this from cover to cover yet because it is dense. Yeah, there's a little sidebar in one of the pages that said that names, I think, 10 other Sky Citadels. But it doesn't. I don't think it said their status as far as maybe it did as far as being overtaken or not. But this is the one located in the Five Kings Mountains. It's uh, it's a level 14 settlement. Uh, this book covers a ton of stuff. Geography, culture, people, timelines, government, and basically anything you would ever want to know about a Dwarven city. And you... One thing I love about how Paizo does stuff is you easily could pull this book and no matter where you are placing your game, there's a Dwarven city. I mean, there unless you have some very, very unique world. And if you have any kind of Dwarven city, this will work. So you could easily pull this out for a Dwarven metropolis that characters could visit and this book would have your back. So this is a, an I want to right off the bat. This is an excellent buy for pretty much anyone, even if Galarian is not your thing. I, I do want to to note, though, that even though this is very clearly a dwarven city, and you can feel it in the way that it's described, in the culture of it, uh, in the tone of how it describes it, and the people, they still don't describe dwarves as a monoculture. They do a really, really good job of saying, you know, dwarves generally. Are are about you know upholding clan honor and and are generally interested in crafting, but that's not always the case. And they're very clear, even with the notable people in here. It's not like all the notable individuals they mark through here and the notable groups and the individual actors 
are all just some trope-laden fantasy dwarf because they're absolutely not. Uh, dwarves are my favorite ancestry uh, in pretty much all of fantasy, and the way that Paizo portrays them is still probably my favorite way of portraying dwarves because it allows you to insert whatever type of dwarf you want into the fantasy and still make it make sense even within the confines of the lore that Galarian has put forward. Yeah, this they did such a great job. The like everything Paizo does, the art in here is fantastic. We have tons of dwarf NPCs, numerous maps of the city. Uh, you know, this is a, a layered city within the Five Kings Mountains. So I believe there's four layers to it, and it has a ton going on. And interestingly enough, I would say of most of their lore books, this one is kind of light on player options, but the player options that are presented are very, very cool. I, I agree. I, I really like that there's a lot of diversity in player options here, too. It's not like they just said, OK, here's an archetype and here's some typical dwarf weapons. No, we get like general feats and skill feats, guys. That's great. There's never enough general feats and skill feats. Yeah, the nice thing about general feats, skill feats clearly are very situational to your character and your campaign. So, yeah, I, you know, everyone, oh, well, this feat's useless. And that, well, it's, again, it's situational. If you're not running a game that doesn't involve, you know, <laughs> unions, you're probably not going to be very interested in the background for unions in this and dealing with them and feats for it. It's really cool. <laughs> and I am going to build a character specifically with that. I cannot wait to build a character using the options from this book that are using essentially a union representative. It's really neat. I mean, I don't like to yuck people's yum, um, but there are a lot of things that people do with backgrounds in this game and like a lot of backgrounds that I think are just weird, at least from my perspective. It's not something I would want to do. It's not the fantasy that I want to portray. But I also realize that a lot of people would think it's really weird that I just want to be like some, you know, union bureaucrat as my character to begin with. Uh, but that's the kind of fantasy that I think works perfectly for some stories that I like to tell. Uh, and that's another reason I love Paizo. It doesn't matter what you're here for. You're going to find something. And it doesn't matter what you're in this book for. You are going to find something. Like Christian said, it's a, um, a little bit light on options. Uh, but th that being said, it's still heavier on options than the last Paizo book we read, which was Firebrands, right? This is kind of in the same realm of content to lore ratio as that is. And I say content like it's not lore. But you know what I mean, mechanical content versus lore content. Uh, there is a couple things I do want to touch on that were unique to this book, because I know that since we're in 2E, a lot of these settings books have become like retconned compilations of things that they did in 1E with a little bit of expansion because of the changes in the world since then. Um, there's a couple really neat things that they've done in this book. There's this whole cult called the Ash Cult led by something called the Ash Engineer, which is essentially a mechanical lich. The uh, art of him has him holding a glowing D20, believe it or not. Uh, that was some sort of alien artifact that poisoned his mind and gave him visions of the weapons and, and conquest. And there's a lot of really interesting things in here about the Ash cultists. They're specifically I inventors I want to and jump engineers. in and say that is very, very on point for when you get your first D20. Very much. <laughs> absolutely. He looks like a conniving GM. 
Yeah, it like ruins your life. <laughs> yeah, he he reminds me of an inventor lich is what yeah, no. he kind of looks like to me. <laughs> he looks like that. And that's pretty much his whole thing. He started replacing his body with mechanical parts to live longer. And he is a mechanical lich. Uh, and he's got a whole cult behind him. He's lawful evil. Um, and he's always scheming something, but it, he doesn't really have this desire to rule High Helm. He has a desire for dwarves to be prominent and dwarven engineering to be prominent. But he's, you know, my perfect idea of a lawful evil uh, character, which is, you know, dangerous and uh, uh, vaguely evil, but not, oh, I'm going to conquer the world. No, I have plans. Lawful evil characters have a plan. And this dude has a plan. He's great. Um. Now, we're trying to make this one a little bit shorter because of our own time restrictions and also the fact that we keep making these so much longer. And we had originally envisioned this show as like a drive time show. And if you got a 40 minute commute, I'm really sorry for you. Uh, but we try to keep we're wanting to keep these closer to 20 or 30. So why don't we jump right into some of this content? Yeah, I was going to say it's more my drive time, which is about 45 minutes to 50 minutes one way each day. <laughs> I go several days in a row without driving. So hooray for work from home. You lucky duck. Uh, just for a, a quick layout, this is chapter one is, you know, the introduction. And as I mentioned in the very beginning, it covers, you know, the geography, the culture, the people, timelines and the government and basically anything you would want to know about that. Uh, the second one is more of a deep dive into each layer of High Helm. And then chapter three, that is where you're going to find all of your character options, which uh, we have a, a pretty cool archetype. We have three new animal companions. We have uh there's a few options sprinkled out throughout chapter two as well. Uh, you'll find some alchemical options for uh, the new uh, food type options for alchemy. So they have a couple things sprinkled here and there. They're not all located in chapter three, but still uh, pretty decent. I actually do want to say uh, one of the things they did here in chapter two is, or I'm sorry, I think it was in chapter one, but it, it reminds me of Zootopia. Like if you ever watch the making of Zootopia and the artists, like they really wanted to portray a logical reason of how Zootopia worked. Like the desert was the heat exhaust for the air conditioners that created the Arctic area. And they kind of did some really cool stuff like the, um, the breather walls, they're like this lattice work of fungus and it helps keep the air clean and does all of this stuff. It's it's really cool. They put a lot of thought into, you know, an isolated dwarven community and how self-sufficient it has to be. It's not like you have endless acres of land to do all your farming and you don't have to worry about air pollution and all of this stuff. So they, they did a really awesome job addressing all of these things. In that same vein, you know, I've long thought about, and, and they, they deal with this sometimes with waste disposal in very large city. We talked about it. Uh, I think at one point, I don't know if we did a, a thing on Absalom. I don't think we did, but we've done some content on things where, uh, and this is going to be spark the, the fires of conversation. Uh, if you call it an Odiug or an Atuya, but they, they eat garbage, right? They're, they're great for that. 
They have a solution like that in High Helm. They're called Grindle Grubs. Not only do they eat garbage, they use them for feedstock. And if there's a siege, they'll eat the Grindle Grubs. And they have spiced dried Grindle Grub as street food. And there's a lovely picture of a woman uh, very tenderly and, and proudly holding this Grindle Grub in her arms uh, that I really enjoy. It looks like a big beetle grub. It's Yeah, it's that, super that was a fantastic picture. There's also an alchemical Grindle Grub steak that is, I think, a level four item. Item, and when you eat it, you don't need to eat again for three days. <laughs> no, it, the thought is gross, but the idea is neat. I oh, it. and I, I just wanted to tell you, I believe in one of the uh, remastered during PaizoCon. I forget who was up there. I think it was, uh, what's his name, Bonner. Uh, he was up there and he, I remember he said Otiug because they were talking about things. You know, these things are still going to be around. They just won't be in the new printing. You know, we still have them. But I, I thought of you when he said Otiug. <laughs> yeah, I still want somebody to show me a, a reason that it's pronounced that way. Using real words, word, words from any language. Anyway, no, it's stuck in my craw now. Uh, so for the character options, they're kind of separated by the area in which you would be most likely to find them. And the areas are separated by kind of the layer in which they exist in High Helm. We start at the top and move your way down. At the top is King's Crown. And that's where kind of the higher social strata is. That's where the administrative, um, some of the uh, central planning type for High Helm, because High Helm is most definitely a centrally planned uh, uh, city with a pretty strong command economy, it feels like. But they talk about Options you could have uh, for items, for backgrounds. The way that they did this book is not like in Absalom or Grand Bazaar, where like, oh, you can get these things at this shop. It's like these things are generally found in this area. And I kind of like that because it gives you a more freeform idea of how the place is laid out. Oh. As for backgrounds, uh, I'm not going to go through all these. We aren't going to go through all these. There's just too much stuff. I kind of want to go through the things that are interesting, unique, um, or things that are you're most likely to see uh, mechanically. Uh, we've got a new background um, that is essentially a spy, uh, low-level spy, high, high-born snoop. You're noble. You're watching uh, out for information to feed to whatever noble house you belong to. You get society, you get guild lore, um, you get courtly graces, and uh, you get dexterity or intelligence and another free boost. So it it it's another good, like, socially driven. And you'll see that a lot in this book because dwarves are very socially driven people their interconnections with each other a lot of these backgrounds you would maybe expect the trope to be crafting or stuff and there's a little bit of that but so much more of this is like playing the court game honestly yeah there's a lot of cool things in here about that the i know trevor is chomping at the bit for the archetype in this book very cool so i would let him so jump into that but we have uh Three animal companions, all of them are basically mounts. You have the Ogdenar. I don't know how to pronounce that. Trevor can probably do it better than I can. Uh, it's just basically a specialized breed of mule uh, designed to live in High Helm. With the, you have draft lizards, and then you also have goats. So I, I feel with the, the Hobbit, goats are now synonymous with dwarves. It was a really cool scene in the Five Armies. So. <laughs> 
I really like how this book seems to focus on the utility of the options, too. Like, none of this feels like we put this in here because it seemed cool. There's reasons behind it. Like, you could do a lot of weird, tropey stuff, but like, you need pack animals that are acclimated for this type of life living underground. So it makes sense. You need something that's good for uh, traversing rocky terrain underground and stuff. So draft lizards, fantastic. Really like the choice of the animal companions. On top of the fact that I know you love getting more animal companions and we're kind of starved for animal companions still. Like explicitly generated animal companions and not something that your DM has, has whipped up for you because he loves you. Remember, your DMs do love you, even though they don't seem like it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, my West Barches groups, you remember that. <laughs> uh, there's a really awesome feature, too, that is, uh, when I first saw this and read through it, I thought it was insanely cool. And it is an, a list of locations throughout the city. And what it does is it tells you the bonuses you get when you are in these areas for doing things such as the archive uh, scholastic theme characters and arcane and occult spellcasters can retrain effectively at the archive such character gains plus some circumstance bonus for checks to create forgery decipher writing and learn a spell on site and there is looks like roughly two dozen of these from the farm from restaurants to shrines to temples to workshops to to the bank to the arena, to the market. And it there is so much stuff in here. It really helps you bring the city to life, giving these little bonuses to your characters as they try to do things within the, you know, the locales of the city. So definitely very well done. Very cool concept. I I haven't really read through Absalom Tum, so I don't know if they did that in there. I'm kind of assuming they did, but I really enjoyed it. I think that's new from here. I don't remember seeing that in Absalom. That being said, the Absalom book is massive, and I may have uh, missed it because when I did those, I wasn't reading them for uh, reviewing, so I wasn't going too deep into them. For those of you that like uh, runes, we do have at least one new rune in this book. I cannot remember if we have additionals, but in the uh, King's Crown region, we got a new rune. Um, it's called Ashen. Uh, it's a level 9 or a level 16 item. What it does is it deals 1d4 persistent fire damage on the, the level 9 one, and you become confused for a round unless you succeed a DC 25 will save. The greater Ashen is a level 16. That persistent fire damage jumps up to a d8, but the save against the confusion is a 35, and if you crit fail, it lasts for a minute. Uh, it's neat. It's super powerful. It's good that it's a level nine item. Though that being said, I think the flaming runes only like a level seven, right? Seven or eight. Yeah, rune? yeah, they're they're seven or eight. Uh, so not that different. But yeah, this confusion. I mean, there is no limit to this. This literally every hit, they have to make that will save, or they become confused for one round. So this is pretty cool for. Characters like Rangers that can get in there and deal lots of attacks on different enemies. I'd like to see this on hand wraps and mighty blows. Well, this is not on melee weapons either. This can be range weapons. So being able to shoot into a group of enemies and then cause 
one or two of them to become confused. This is amazing for causing chaos. I mean, absolutely fantastic. I would not be surprised if this gets an errata, honestly, because that auto confusion, even at a level nine, you know, auto attempt to, you know, it may inflict confusion every hit is insanely powerful. Uh, if you listen to our show, you have seen how ridiculous confusion can get if you put it on something that just has a low wheel save. They'll, they'll do the work for you. Uh, so if you just focus fire some big dope and he beats the crap out of his, uh, about out of his comrades, it's a fantastic item and, and maybe a little bit more powerful than it should, should be, but it certainly looks fun. I'm going to use it. Oh yeah. When you see every DM knows, when you see that giant bruiser monster, you know, it's got a will a low will save. So, Oh, perfect. <laughs> let's see what it can do to his buddies. All right, let's let's move right along down uh, down a little deeper. Uh, we get down into King's Heart, and King's Heart is more of like where the 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 tri- like the the skilled craftsmen work. Like you would think, like upper upper middle class, middle class. Uh, when you get down here, there's a lot of talk about um, guilds and unions for skilled trades, uh, and a lot of the options that are offered in this chapter are related to that. Like Christian was saying, there's a lot of stuff in here related to unions, uh, to um, negotiations. Uh, the background that's, that's here is literally a union representative. That's the background that's portrayed for this, this chapter. We get a bunch of new skill feats, including a contract negotiator that requires you to be skilled in legal lore. Uh, that's a skill feat. Well, we get vicious critique, um, which is uh, you're trying to to get a better price on something by telling them it actually sucks. So you're negging a merchant. Uh, that's the whole idea for that feat. Cooperative crafting. Christian, this one I thought of you when I first saw the cooperative crafting. It allows allies to aid you in crafting. Um, and. You can only work with one ally at the same time. You both attempt a crafting check, and if you both succeed, you reduce the minimum time to craft the item by one day. That's neat. That's cool. We all have complained about the way that the crafting system works in 2E, and you know this is one of those things that, remember, in 1E, we had like the elephant in the room skill feats. This is one of those things, since it's canon, I may, I may in a game, just offer this to people without a, a feat. But now that we have like a rule written down for it, this is cool. I really like this. This is probably something that I would have homebrewed anyway. Uh, and I like it. It's, it, it, it's useful. It's neat. It's thematic. It makes sense for this section of the book because it's about guild workers and, and, and being in a collective work group, a, a, you know, and being in a, in a union and working together. It makes perfect sense for this. Yeah, the locations on these areas are, I mean, they're, each one has several, uh, you know, paragraphs about it. But where we are, King's Heart, like the number one spot, the Endless Reservoir, it is this very cool fantasy. It is listed as an attraction, a lodge, a monument, and it is run by a neutral, evil, undying dwarf druid and her acolytes. And it basically is a carefully controlled rift to the elemental plane of water. And this is the the main source where the city gets its water. It's very cool. And she is she does the fishing licenses and all of this stuff. It's really amusing because there's just 
every little sentence in here kind of makes you think about life in this city and how it, you know, how they go about things. So yeah, they did such a good job. And there are every layer has, you know, a, a dozen or so of these locations listed in it with typically with NPCs that are, you know, important to the area. So there is so much in this book. This is where I said, like, if you are just running any game and there's a dwarf city, this is fantastic for that. This is this does so much of the legwork for you and then some that you can easily if you need to just pull out a layer and use it as a smaller dwarf city. There's so many options for you. I like the idea that that's a neutral evil character that's essentially controlling the entire water supply for High Helm. I dig it. Evil characters are fun. We go down another level, we go into Stone Breach, which is laborers, farmers, cleaners. I mean, this is more of the, this is the working class area. Um, There's, you know, you'll find your tattoo shop down here. Uh, You'll find, like, uh, 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 hostels, essentially, um, work homes, or uh, sorry, uh, working camps. You'll find the bare knuckle boxing arena is down here, and there's some options for the bare knuckle boxing uh, stuff, including a specific type of hand wraps of mighty blows that have benefits if you cause bleed on things because it's a bare knuckle boxing brawling. We've got a fight breaker background, which is you know how to. To break up a fight because they happen around here so common. You get group impression, uh, you get wisdom or charisma, you get diplomacy, allure for the area. Makes it perfect that you're just that dude that's always in the right place at the right time to stop a fight from happening. We got some magical liquor, magical beer that gives you different benefits based on what level it is. Those are those are fun things. Um, we get a new rune in here as well. It's called Unexceptional. It just makes something look mundane, which is really great if you're trying to keep a low profile, which makes sense for this area. This is, this is where you're going to find some information. This is where it starts to get a little seedier in High Helm, and you want to keep a low profile down here. We get tattoos. Tattoos are always fun. You know how much we love tattoos. Uh, lots of fun options all through the book. Um, and they're very thematic to each layer. And we get down into the, I believe, the final layer. And the one that's generally connected to the Darklands would be the Depths. It's where the mines are, where a lot of the uh, more mechanical options of the city are, are there. And, and this is not an area where people live. Therefore, there's not really options for the Depths. Um, because this is a place where you work. This is a place where you come and then get in, get out, you're done. Each uh, location has a sidebar that covers like local flora and fauna. There is, you know, they cover the neighborhoods, the kind of the districts within these areas. So there is, uh, again, I can't state it enough. There's so much information in this book. Uh, This is, what is this, a 200 something? 133 pages, actually. I was surprised how short it actually is. Okay, yeah. There, it's packed in here. It, it feels like it's much longer than it is. Um, those of you that really like the shaman in 1E, I will note that there is a, a level one feat. Um, and it's meant, it's a, it's a level one dwarven ancestry feat. It's a Rivathun disciple, and there's a whole 
chain of feats that go along with that. And it specifically is mentioning the same type of lore that was in place for the shaman in 1E. So if you guys are digging the shaman, maybe this is an idea that the shaman is coming in some way. Because a lot of these ancestry feats definitely have the shaman feel. They talk specifically about becoming aware of the friction between your body and spirit as well, which is was a big thing in the shaman, was a big thing in the iconic shaman, which a lot of you remember, um, I believe was a trans woman in 1E and was a Rivathun disciple. So if you are into that lore from 1E, it looks like it's at least coming back in some way. I'm here for it. I love the shaman in 1E. Yeah, I feel like Hell of the Wild will probably have a little more stuff geared getting heading in that direction if they're going to do something like that. Maybe, maybe. I know you're really excited for that book. It's on the list. I've already submitted a request for it. Let's jump into this archetype. Yes, this is probably the last big thing we'll talk about because there's a, lo- a couple other neat things. There's a new type of material that's very rare, that's very powerful, uh, that I think we should keep a secret for them. Uh, but this archetype, when I saw this archetype, this fits so much into so much of, this fits so perfectly into so much of my, fant- my own personal fantasy about how dwarves function. This one is called the Stalwart Defender, and you could probably get a good idea of what they do just based on the name of the archetype. They are any, it's available to any dwarf that is trained in light armor, or if you have undergone defender training in a dwarven settlement or dwarven sky citadel, if you've been around dwarves and they've, they've touched. So this is definitely a dwarven specific archetype. Um, at level two, you get a stance, which, uh, steadies you tough and immutable with stone. You get temp HP equal to half of your level. Uh, a plus two circumstance bonus to DCs against being shoved and tripped, but you cannot negate your armor check penalty or speed penalty for having a high strength. After you leave Tenacious Stance, you lose temp hit points and become temporarily immune for going into it for a minute. At least temporarily immune from getting the hit points from Tenacious Stance for a minute. So you can't kind of toggle the buff on and on and on and off and try to cheese it. I really loved the uh, one of the fourth level feats is Tunnel Wall. And you use your shield to guard against movement of foes. And basically, when you raise your shield, you become anchored for one round. Uh, While anchored, you gain plus four circumstance bonus to the DC to tumble through your space. So this is a way to, like, you know, try to prevent enemies and hold the line. And I thought that was a really cool feature. Another one of these feats is the level six feat crushing step that allows you to manipulate movement by ignoring difficult terrain from non-magical sources if you're wearing heavy armor. If you're uh, legendary in that armor, heavy armor proficiency, you ignore greater difficult terrain from non-magical sources as well. So I think we've talked about how like so crucial that things like difficult terrain are for you as a GM to manage how your players are, are dealing with an encounter intelligently. This is more fodder for you to put that in to influence them to grab more options like this. It's ter- great, uh, difficult terrain and greater difficult terrain is so underused by GMs. Um, and this is a really good way for your players to realize that that's a thing and give you a reason to remember to use it. And I like here, too, because there are 11 feats total counting the initial dedication feat. So they are definitely... I feel like going a little more into this fact that 
you know, the, the free archetype is such a standard feature that everyone takes. And not only are there 11 feats, but then there are also another three additional feats that already exist that they say, oh, you have access to these two. So you, you would never be able to get all of the feats available unless you actually start devoting your class feats, even if you're taking free archetypes. So I, I do enjoy the fact that they kind of are you know, seeing that which of their optional features are becoming more staples and doing what they can. You know, I don't think we've seen a new archetype recently that is missing a feat like several of them were, where a lot of people you know, very unhappy when you hit that level and you're like, oh, there's no feat option. And they've said it that during the remaster, they're going to be rejiggering some of those to make them not be missing feat options. So things like uh, Talisman Dabbler, which they're reworking talismans anyway. Uh, we'll hopefully get that feat of support. And, you know, this this archetype even allows for you to heal yourself as well. They've got Gathering Moss, which while you're in Tenacious Stance, you get fast healing equal to your level as long as you're in the stance. So, or, or for a minute. Uh, that's nuts, because that's a level 10 feat. So that's going to at least give you fast healing 10 for one minute. That That's 60 HP in fast healing 60 hp is no joke and after this uh we hit a, a little section on magic items which there are magic items again sprinkled throughout the the chapter two in each region of the city there are items specific to that locale uh we have you know some armor we have a, a drill very cool uh shield uh, the material that Trevor mentioned, we have uh, continuing down. There is a new relic. There is a forge relic that has uh, a new list of gifts from minor, major, and grand gifts. So that is cool. And then there finishes off with some legendary items. There's a uh, basically a level 22 artifact in here. There's and then it gets into gods and all kinds of little tidbits after that and then there's like a little glossary in the back so it is anything you really could want to know oh there's even a little bestiary back here too with not only the animal companions that were introduced and how they exist in the wild normally but also a couple other things like grand defender a level 15 construct it is this giant stone dwarf statue that helps defend the city and you know, just a couple cool little critters and things like that. So there is more than enough to keep you occupied and get your values worth out of this book. That is for I, sure. I really like the expansion of the Dwarven Pantheon in here. But if I had one complaint about the entire book, there is nothing about the evil gods of the Dwarven Pantheon in here. I want to see more stuff about the evil gods in the Dwarven Pantheon. But you know what? You can't keep 100% of the people happy 100% of the time. And I'm pretty dang happy with this book. Yeah, I think that about wraps us up for today. What do you got? Anything else you want to throw in there? And uh, this book, you can pick it up today if you are listening to this. It is available now. Well, I think that then wraps us up for the week. So I'm Christian. And I'm Trevor. And as always, you all have a great week. Bye, y'all. <laughs>